Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the causes for investor concern over stagflation and the cases being made for such a scenario playing out or not playing out. So joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome back to Top of the Morning, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Uh, Jason, great to be back with you. Thank you for joining us and looking forward to our conversation. Good morning, Dan. It's good to be here. So, Jason, as our listeners, our clients might recall, over the past few weeks, we've been talking about this stagflation concern that's been building up, and it continues to be a topic that is top of mind for investors. Maybe to level set it for us, Jason, can you remind us what is leading to this current worry over stagflation? The inflation concerns easy to understand because uh, we see it every day in our lives, whether it be at the grocery store or at the gas pump. But uh, with respect to stagflation, Jason, what's driving the concern. Well, if you think of like stagflation as a combination of kind of stagnating and inflation, as you mentioned, the inflation part is kind of relatively obvious as we're all kind of dealing with it. We, we see it behind the tenors just on the news, but in our day-to-day lives as well. Uh, I think the issue with inflation is that, you know, we knew coming out of the pandemic uh, earlier this year that inflation would rise as the economy fully reopened, and that was certainly the case for some goods. But the, the talk then by economists, by the Fed, was that this would be you know, transitory. And we can debate about like, what is the definition of transitory, how long. Some people might think a few months. I think the Fed sort of used it as, we still kind of use it as basically a year. And so by the second quarter of next year, it's going to moderate. But here we are in you know, late October, and you know, CPI numbers are still around 5%. And expectations are that it'll stay at that level probably until the middle of the first quarter, and then maybe start to moderate from there. So uh, rather than maybe just transitory, there's some concern this is becoming sticky. Uh, and in, the reason for that is it's not just sort of the pandemic disruptions that are causing you know, you know higher inflation. You know the anecdotes of used car prices surging 10% a month, hotel prices you know bouncing back quickly. Same with rental car prices as people suddenly start to travel. These are sort of temporary things that are going to revert. I mean they, they always do when you see these big moves on certain prices. They always tend to come back. What's more concerning is the fact that there's some cyclical factors that could lead to you know more ongoing inflation. You know such as you know, rising rent and shelter costs, which is about a third of, of inflation measures or thereabouts. Uh, we're seeing you know, wages rise, given a very tight labor market, or at least, you know, difficulty hiring. That could be you know, passed through to higher inflation. So these cyclical phenomena, you know, could lead to inflation staying elevated for a longer period of time. So that's the inflation concern. Yet that you know, energy costs, again, are also, you know, uh, you know elevated and going up a lot. I think what's less appreciated maybe is, is on the growth front. We did see growth in the summer slow down quite a bit. A lot of that coincided with, you know, the rise in the number of Delta cases in July, particularly in August. Uh, what we've seen since then, though, is, you know, those numbers have come down. You know, from the peak of the Delta cases on September 1st in the U.S., they're down 55%. We have a seven-day moving average. So that's definitely alleviated. And people are also, I think, more comfortable, again, doing activities that they were pulling back in the summer. So if you look at some very high-frequency data, of just like air travel, done out of restaurants, it's actually picking up again, and so we should see a bit of an acceleration in growth in the in the fourth quarter. That can continue to next year. So the stagnation part, I think that's the part that's probably more debatable, um, because growth is still going to be you know quite elevated for another year, you know, above long term trends. But you know, if it doesn't, if supply problems persist, you know, growth could sort of undershoot and inflation could stay high. That fuels the stagflation concern. 
Well, Jason, it's interesting. You mentioned how people are resuming to normal activities. You mentioned air travel in particular. I was away this past week and uh, just traveling through airports on airplanes. You do see a lot of people participating and you do see a lot of crowding. Getting back to your stagflation point, you do call stagflation the bear case, though it is interesting just reading through your blog, Jason. uh, You do mention how it's worth thinking about the underappreciated development supporting the bull case and you cite quite a few points within the blog on that. Any in particular you'd like to highlight for us today? Well, first, I think it's important to recognize that there's there's always an upside scenario uh, that we're so focused right now on stagflation, the downside possibilities that we can lose sight of, you know, other developments, and particularly you know, things that are going on in the economy, things that are underappreciated, or we can look at the same data in a different perspective and instead of viewing it as a negative, actually, this could be a sign of a positive. So in the blog, I list 10 different factors uh, you know, they think that they're all either happening or could happen that if they do, you know, increase the chances of a bull case scenario, you know, fit of stagflation, something more along the lines of what I call like the 90s, where we had a really good growth run, inflation was low, it felt like it was a booming economic time period. That's sort of the bull case scenario. And you know, I think I grouped the factors that I point to in three broad categories. You know, one is sort of macro factors. So if we go to the point of inflation, it's widely documented about the supply chain issues, you know, the bottleneck ports in Los Angeles. You know, but this is also a demand story. We're seeing a huge increase in demand for basically goods, more so than services. Uh, and the basic way we can look at it is like, what is the demand today versus two years ago in 2019? We don't want to look at 2020 because last year was so distorted by the pandemic. Our baseline is from two years ago. And in that perspective, you can see, you know, demand or consumption of goods is up about 15%. In a normal year, it'd be up 2 to 3%. So, you know, we're, we're triple, basically, the amount of you know, consumption that's increased over the past three years. You know, so demand is very strong. Supply is keeping up with it to some extent. So we're producing more in the U.S. globally than we ever have. You wouldn't know that hearing about all the supply issues. But supply just can't keep up with demand, which is so strong. Now, the positive aspect of that is for the last decade pre-pandemic, we had a situation where it was a kind of slow, stagnant growth, low inflation, low interest rates, a term that economists call executive stagnation. And one of the kind of explanations for it is that there just isn't enough demand. There's not enough demand that can you know, cause companies to increase supply, hire more workers, lift wages, cause inflation. Uh, or just a little bit of inflation, you know, as opposed to deflation. This demand shock could actually be positive. It's going to force companies to react and actually increase their capacity, increase supply. Um, that actually would be a positive. Same thing on wage growth. You know, yes, it could be inflationary, but if wage growth stays strong because the demand for labor is so high, as inflation does come down, but wages stay high, suddenly you can start to get real wage growth, particularly for sort of lower income workers. That would be a positive in dealing with sort of long term inequality issues, also positive for long term demand. So there is a perspective of what's going on that's actually you know, positive for the long term outlook for demand if we get to the near term sort of inflation issues. Kind of related to that, I look at sort of investment you know, categories. You know, we're seeing CapEx spending, you know, the best it's been in, in a decade. Um, it's possible this week or the next week we could get the budget reconciliation deal and an infrastructure package passed out of, of D.C. That would increase the spending. Uh, you know, that's long-term. That tends to be positive for economic growth. A lot of investment in green technology. So investment that hasn't taken place in the past decade, we could see a bit of a boom there. And the third broad factor is, I call it behavioral, that we're seeing people you know, do things that would suggest they're willing to take greater risk. So, for example, in August, it's widely decided that 4.3 million Americans quit their job. Again, you can look at that as negatively, like, this is a problem with the labor market. 
Or you can look at it positively and say people are willing to quit their jobs because they, they know there's a lot of jobs out there. They can find something, but they're also going to maybe try to do something new, you know, in an area that they think that could be more productive for them or starting a new business. And what we've also seen during the pandemic is that the number of new sort of you know, business formations on a monthly basis uh, is about 50% greater on average over the past year than it was for pretty much the decade prior to the pandemic. That's a big change. People are willing to take risks. Uh, they want to quit their job. They want to start something new. It's injecting some dynamism into the U.S. economy that was really kind of absent for much of the past decade. And there's so much kind of capital out there from startup companies to, you know, companies going public that the money to invest and try this exists. So when I add this all together, kind of this macro shock, this investment potential shock and a behavioral change, this could unleash, you know, productivity gains that, you know, could put us on a much you know, better path for the rest of the decade. Not saying this will happen. But, you know, factors are in place, so that's a possibility, and that's the bull case. I think that's not being appreciated by investors when they're so focused on these supply side problems and looking at things from a negative perspective as opposed to taking a positive view of, like, what could actually materialize. Between these two cases, and now we have a much better understanding for the bull case, but in your opinion, how likely is each to occur? And further, Jason, what indicators are you watching to determine if one of these two scenarios is becoming more likely? Well, I mean, one's a bear case, one's a bull case. It's not the base case. So the reality is it's probably something going to be in between these two. Uh, you know, something that where inflation moderates, the growth may kind of trend back towards, you know, the long-term levels. So better than the last decade, a little bit higher growth, a little bit higher inflation, maybe a little bit higher interest rates, but not a kind of booming scenario, but really avoiding the stagflation scenario. I think that's probably, you know, a reasonable outlook for the next you know, few years. If we think of then between all the bear case and the bull case, what is more likely the answer to that kind of hinges on the time frame you're talking about. So in some ways, stagflation is much more of a near-term risk, meaning the next six months, even 12 months. Um, you know, and we'll know this time next year, you know, what's materializing because, not, you know, we know from our, you know, just a, uh, the way the numbers are calculated, inflation is going to start to drop by, you know, the spring of next year just because of the way it's measured year over year. So price increases won't stay that, you know, elevated. We also know some of the supply chain disruptions, the bottlenecks in ports in the Los Angeles, those should ease by, you know, the, the February, March timeframe. That should alleviate some of the pressures. So inflation should moderate. But if it doesn't, 12 months from now, if we're still talking about 4% inflation, then you have a situation where the Fed might have to raise rates to cool the economy. And if they do that, they might have to raise rates aggressively. That actually risks a recession as soon as 2023 or 2024. That's the you know, So if we get to inflation, we're going to know when about a year from now if that's a possibility. It will be likelihood. The bull case actually requires us to kind of get through the next six months, realize that inflation is not going to happen. We trend towards the, the base case. Then suddenly the bull case looks a little bit more you know, possible because the, the headwinds from preventing it from happening, you know, they go away. So I'd say the bull case is really more of a three or four year view. The inflation view is like more of like a one year view. And if it doesn't happen, then the probability of the bull case increases. To what to watch, I think there's a few things we have to look at. Just more of the structure of the economy. You know, how fast do people come back to the labor market? You know, a lot of people have left. Did they come back? Um, how quickly can supply chain issues, you know, be resolved across different segments of the economy? Uh, or does it persist, you know, for various reasons, you know, well into next year or even into 2023? Uh, and then it also look at things like uh, investment. You know, we've seen companies that invest more now, but do they start to continually invest at high levels to deal with supply problems or bottlenecks or the fact that they can't hire labor? They invest in more technology to substitute for labor, and does that lead to productivity improvements? So these are things that we, you know, you don't necessarily tell in the next, you know, two or three months. But underlying, looking at the trends, that'll give us kind of clarity over the next six months or longer 
what scenario is going to play out over the next you know, two to three years. Now, Jason, you've been largely speaking in context of a longer-term outlook. We're talking years, though, on a more near-term basis, maybe over the next six to eight months. Jason, I understand that the Chief Investment Office has made some changes to the House view, and I will point out to our clients, our listeners, we're going to have a more in-depth conversation on this next week, though, for the purposes of today, Jason, at a high level, can you walk us through some of the changes that were made within the latest House view? So we have been sort of recommending in portfolio position, you know, something that we'd say is consistent sort of with this reflation trade, which, you know, based off of, you know, good growth, but also elevated inflation, it tends to favor within U.S. equities, you know, value stocks, mid-caps, you know, sectors like energy and financials and consumer discretionary, you know, outside of the U.S., you know, Japanese equities, which are tied to the global cycle, you know, liking commodities and expected interest rates to go higher. All that still holds. Uh, but what we did in our update this past uh, month, or just last week, was made some changes, I think, at the margin, which, um, you know, I think are, are noteworthy, but not game-changing by any stretch. Uh, and one is uh, that we upgraded our view of U.S. large-cap growth equities from a least preferred to neutral. The result of this, while keeping value as most preferred, to sort of trims at the margin, you know, the reflationary bias we have within U.S. equities, while still favoring value stocks. You know, we like them value stocks because, you know, the earnings outlook for this year and, and really for next year is better than growth. Uh, we still think interest rates will rise, which is a relative advantage for value stocks versus growth stocks. But on that point on interest rates, you know, one of the key drivers why we liked value more than growth was we thought rates would rise. And if we go back to early September, you know, the yield in the 10-year Treasury was 1.3%. You know, now it's around 1.6, 1.65%. Our year-end target is 1.8%. So it's already moved 60 to 70% of the way we thought we would get. As a result, so the headwind of higher rates for growth stocks has kind of eased off a little bit. And also, like, like if we're wrong on a sort of our optimistic scenario for, you know, kind of growth being good and inflation moderating, uh, if growth slows, if, rate, if the rise in rate stalls, growth stocks are likely to outperform. So it's a bit of a portfolio kind of hedge. But consistent with this reflation narrative, we also upgraded Eurozone equities to most preferred. Uh, and this is based on a few factors. Uh, one, the Eurozone is likely to actually grow faster next year in terms of GDP than it did this year. Uh, and part of that is earlier in the year, they still had, uh, you know, COVID situations were, were more worse in the U.S. The vaccination rollout was about, you know, three months later. So it really wasn't until the second half of the year that, you know, you know European growth picked up. In addition, there's a lot of fiscal stimulus coming, whether it's in Germany or it's a part of a kind of recovery fund that's going to, you know, be implemented across really Southern Europe. But European equities also tend to be a little bit more cyclical in their nature, their composition. Uh, they tend to be tied to kind of the global cycle. They tend to do well when inflation is rising and value outperforms. You know, and that's an environment we think is, is the case. Uh, and the third sort of you know, change we made uh, that I think it's notable for our clients is that we upgraded the U.S. dollar to our most preferred status. Um, the dollar has done well this year, and we think there's still, still a little bit more upside. You know, not a huge amount, but you know, more upside relative to other currencies especially the euro, the yen, other developed market currencies. Uh, and the reason is that ultimately kind of comes down to what are central banks doing. And we expect next week the Fed, after its uh, meeting, will announce the start of tapering, um, which should be done by the middle of next year. And then the question is like how soon and how quickly do they raise rates. So we'd rather kind of you know, allocate to currencies where the central banks are going towards the path of normalization versus, say, in, in Europe, the ECB, um, is likely to stay on hold and pause at least until 2023, if not longer. So all sequel, that tends to favor the dollar. So just something to think about that there are good opportunities overseas, 
but be aware that the dollar could appreciate over the next you know, six to 12 months. And that would be a bit of a haircut on, on potential returns from either it's European or Japanese equities. Well, Jason, very productive, insightful conversation. So thank you for shedding light on CIO's take on the stagflation concerns. I'm sure a topic we'll be covering for quite some time, as well as updating us on CIO's current asset allocation recommendations. Looking forward to picking back up on that conversation with you next Monday. Though in the meantime, Jason, I wish you a nice week ahead. Thank you again for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome and have a great week. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we've been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including two recent blogs. Blogs authored by Jason Dreho. These tie right into the conversation we just had. Titles are Rose Colored Glasses and House View Update the Home Stretch. Again, both can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO. Though for clients of UBS, as always, simply contact your financial advisor if you would like to receive copies of both directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.